So today we're going to conclude, as I said a, a little bit earlier, this series of message, messages we began two weeks ago called Men and Women, Husbands and Wives, and we've been dealing with just a handful of verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I'm going to say again uh, what I have been saying for the last few weeks, that these, even though these verses, at first glance, seem to break the flow of Paul's letter to Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor of a local church in Ephesus. And in the first part of chapter 2, uh, the first seven verses, Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, lead the followers of Jesus in an understanding that God has called them to be world changers through intercessory prayer. High calling. We have, as followers of Christ, the opportunity to, uh, to partner with him in seeing this world change simply by how we pray. The global political climate changed by the way we pray. And then, after this passage, the first 13 verses of chapter 3, Paul, in, uh, in his letter to Timothy, is saying, look, Here's the characteristics and qualities you're looking for in men and women who will become leaders in the church, the only hope of the world. And so these two sections of high calling that are on the people of God are <coughs> surrounding this little section that we've been dealing with that has to do with first men, then women, and then husbands and wives, and how the unique way that Adam and Eve were tempted and succumbed to temptation in the fall has created a, a kind of a, a cloud that hangs over the genders and over the relationships that men and, women, men and women have with each other. And Paul says, here's some things to do to step out from under that cloud. He says to men... Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, giving up wrath and doubting. We talked about that two weeks ago. He says to women, women, adorn yourselves in a way that's orderly, that brings you out. You're not someone else. Uh, there's no, not someone else staring back at you in the mirror. Uh, um, clothe yourself. Accessorize your life with the things that bring honor to God, not, not attention to you. There's, and, and, and on it goes. So, and he was addressing the two primary um, ways in which the fall has affected men and women uniquely. Men through a, a sense of failure and shame with regard to not stepping up and coming through. We'll talk a little bit more that, about that in a minute. And women addressing the, the cloud of insecurity that hangs over women because of the deception that the enemy posed to Eve that you're not enough without this external thing. So the, the, the climate that... The, the genders live under is, is affected by that. And Paul says, we got to get this straight if we're going to be world changers through intercessory prayer and leaders in the church. And that's why we've been focusing. It's not just because it's interesting, but because it's important. Radically important. So I'm going to read this whole passage one more time. But we're going to be dealing today with verses 11 through 15. And actually, really, what I want to get to is the last part of verse 15. But I gotta, I gotta wade through the rest of this stuff to make sure that we are on the same page when we get there. And we, if you are scripturally literate at all, you know we're about to step into some uh, tricky water, some uh, a minefield. And so get ready. 
Um, it really shouldn't be. These verses, in my view, are some of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied in the whole of the Bible. And it's a shame, a shame, because the, the truths that they contain are so valuable, so important, that when we don't understand them correctly, um, it, it, we, we miss a lot of what God wants to do. But one of the things that this, uh, this uh, a passage bumps right up against, and we will this morning, is the subject of women in ministry leadership. I'm not going to deal with that today. But, um, I, I, so, but I don't want to just leave it unaddressed, and so we have a few of these. The first service took nearly all the ones that we have, but we have a few left, and after the service, if you want one of these, you can grab one. I'll tell you what it is in a minute, but that man standing right back there will make sure you can uh, grab one of the few that we have remaining, and, and then I will make some more for next week. This is not something I produced or wrote. This is a, a paper, a position paper that our family of churches uh, has put together, and it talks, it is a, uh, a deep dive into the scriptures about uh, the role of women in ministry leadership and what we believe about that and why. And let me just summarize it by telling you that uh, Crossroads and our family of churches believe that there is nothing of ministry leadership off limits to women. Nothing. And that's not just because uh, we live in some sort of enlightened age, far from it, and we're trying to match the culture's enlightenment. That's not the case at all, but because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. So anyway, there's that. Now let me start reading in verse 8. I desire therefore, and remember, that word therefore is because of what precedes it. So because God is calling you to be world changers through prayer, listen up to these things. I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Uh, with propriety and moderation, not with bra braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women prof professing godliness with good works. So we have these instructions to men, then these instructions to women, and I believe we turn now at verse 11 uh, to talk more about how men and women relate to each other and uh, the issues regarding that and particularly how husbands and wives relate to each other. And, uh, and the context is again the unique way that Adam and Eve were tempted and um, uh, the fallout unique to each gender based on that. But the reason that I think that these verses now shift towards the relationship of men and women is because uh, men and women are spoken of in the same sentences from here on sometimes, and the subject of childbearing is, is introduced, and so I, I, I think it's pretty clear that now Paul is making a little bit of a change. One other thing I kind of need to set, uh, say is that I'm going to refer to... Um, Original, I'm going to say this probably, these words, original language, or I'm going to say Greek. And just in case you don't know, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so what you have there is you have an English translation from the Greek. And so sometimes you can't 
directly or, or not easily trans make that translation. If you've ever worked with a translator or tried to communicate with someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, you know there's some, some difficulties in that process. So if I talk to you today about, or if I mention a Greek word or the original word or in the original, if I say something like that, that's what I'm referring to. And right off the bat, let me just say that the words that are translated for woman, women, man or men, uh, can, they're the same words uh, that are translated as husband and wife in uh, other parts of the New Testament and in fact most often are translated that way. So we have the same word and you, the translators, those who are taking the Greek translation and translating it into English, they make the determination about whether it's woman or wife, man or husband based on the context, but it's the same word. You following me? So we're talking here about things that have to do, yes, with uh, genders specifically, but also with husbands and wives and that relationship too, all right? So, verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Can I uh, ask you, to give me permission not to have to try to um, describe and defend other approaches to translate or to um, uh, exegeting or explaining or um, understanding these verses because we don't have the time for that. I'm just going to tell you what I believe that these verses say and why, all right? Some of you are nodding. The rest of you, is that okay too? All right. But I'll just acknowledge there are other points of view. All right. And some of you, I asked you over the last couple of weeks to promise me that when we got to today and we dove into this section, you would not bring preconceptions to it. You would let me uh, speak to you as though we were looking at this with fresh eyes. And so I'm taking you up on your promise right now. Paul says to Timothy, he says, I allow or let a woman. So he's going to tell us in verse 11 what he allows and then in verse 12 what he doesn't allow. Okay, so he says, I, I allow, I want, let this happen, that a woman learn in silence with all submission. Let a woman learn. Right there is a revolution, a revolutionary concept. Do you understand that until this point in human history, women were... Uh, excluded from theological, from biblical, from religious uh, training or understanding, or participation for that matter. It was a man thing. Paul says, I want women to learn. He's opening the door to all of us, men and women, to have full access to the word of God, to the things of God, to the ways of God, to the worship of God. He's opening the door to everyone. I, I, want a, I want a woman to learn. And then he says, in silence, and I, I know that it sounds as though Paul is saying, uh, you can learn, but, you know, don't say anything. Just shut up. 
That, but that's not what he's saying. The word that's translated as silence here in my English Bible is the exact same word that's translated quiet, or peaceable in verse 2 of the same chapter. Paul is, is giving us the definition of this word. Silence sounds like something imposed from outside, but really this word that's translated as silence in verse 11 is talking about a tranquility that rises from inside, not a silence imposed from external, from outside. So it's exactly the opposite of what you might think. Paul is saying, I want for women to be able to learn everything that they can learn without having to fight for it. It literally means to keep their seat. That they don't have to fight for it that they can have a, a, a peace, tranquility that, that uh, rises from inside of them knowing that they have the same, the same full access to the things of God as any man. And then he says, I want them to learn everything that they can learn about God and worship him in, in, in exactly the same way as men, without having to fight for it, without having to grab for it, within submission. And there's a preposition used here in my English Bible, with submission, that in my opinion is, un, is unfortunate. It really should be, and I'm no Greek scholar, okay? Let's just, let me admit that. But, it, everything that I read seems to indicate that it would be better translated by the word in, the preposition in, because the word there means um, being in the interior of some whole, surrounded by something. So he says, I want women to be able to learn without having to fight for it, within the context of submission, inside the context of submission. And whoever got the idea that in the Christian church, submission is a one-way street, that it's only about women submitting to men. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christians, we, our, our Christian faith is lived out, men and women, in a context of submission. That's the, that's the air we breathe. The Bible from cover to cover, especially the New Testament, is, teaches us that we are to offer, um, to put others ahead of ourselves, to take the low seat at the table, to get to the back of the line. In fact, the Bible says that the last will be first, doesn't it? Jesus modeled, in fact, in Philippians it says that one of the reasons one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, one of the reasons we will do that is because he submitted himself to the cross. Jesus modeled this, that this is how we live as believers, men and women. This is not some, some exclusive condition. This is the environment that we all live within. Paul says, I want for women to be able to learn everything that they can learn with, without having to fight for it and without having to step outside of this environment we all live in as believers in Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, I do not, this is what I don't allow, I don't permit, oh, uh, excuse me, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, um, I know what this sounds like. 
But let's take a look at it uh, in a little different light. When it says that uh, he doesn't allow a woman to teach, we know that, or, or teach uh, uh, men, we know that this is not a blanket um, uh, prohibition against women teaching men. Here's how we know that. Because the guy that Paul is writing to, Timothy, received his initial theological training from his mother and his grandmother. We know that Abraham, the father of the faith, the father, father of the Jewish people, was instructed by God specifically when, when Abraham had a different idea of what should happen. God said, no, you listen to what Sarah is saying to you. We know that the great uh, teacher and orator, Apo Christian orator and uh, teacher Apollos, was instructed by Priscilla. So we know that this isn't some sort of blanket stage statement that women cannot teach men. What he's talking about is the next phrase. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. And that word is important for us to take note of, authority. In, in Greek, there are, in fact, in the Greek New Testament, there are a number of Greek words that are translated by the one English word, authority. This one here that's translated as authority here, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. So Paul is addressing something very specific. It's a word that describes the kind of authority that one takes to themselves. The kind of domineering authority that one uh, uh, assumes, not is their right or their given uh, position. In fact, uh, to be specific, the, the definition is to exercise authority over, uh, on one's own account, to domineer over, to act with self-appointed authority, to seize control. And Paul is saying, I don't allow that for, for a woman or anyone to seize to themselves authority over another. That is so contrary to the nature of our Christian faith. Now he's addressing these, this to women, but, but can, you, can anybody imagine that Paul is not including men in that statement? Think about the whole passage here. When Paul addresses men and says, he says to them, pray everywhere, lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting. Is he saying, and women, you don't have to worry about that? Of course not. And when he says to women, adorn yourselves in a way that honors God, is he saying, and men, do whatever you want? No. <laughs> These things are, are for all of us. And so when Paul is addressing this subject, he says, I want women to be able to learn all that they can learn about God and about his ways without having to fight for it and still be able to remain in that context of submission that we all belong in. Well, I don't want for them to have to take authority to themselves. That's not how we live in the family of God. But he says to be in silence. And there we have that same word again. It's not something that's imposed from outside. It's a tranquility, a peaceableness that ought to be um, at the end of the day that we all experience. And then we come to verses 13 and 14, which we've spent quite a bit of time on for the last uh, few weeks because they, it says, for... 
and then gives us this information. These things that precede are on the basis of this because this is so. These are the, this is why we have to talk about this stuff. And he says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And that's not saying, okay, women, you need to just shut up and, and let your husbands teach you because Adam came first. It's not about supremacy. It's not about hierarchy. It's about chronology. And Paul is saying to Timothy, help the people to understand that Adam had a longer period of time to process the command of God to resist the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His fall was harder. He had a harder fall because he had that command from God longer. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that the sin nature that we've inherited, we inherit from who? Adam. It's because of his fall. Now, that doesn't mean that Eve's fall was, or Eve's sin what, didn't have you know, consequences of its own. It doesn't excuse her in any way. But when Paul says, or says she was deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing, he's talking about the different ways that men and women in uh, Adam and Eve were confronted with this temptation. It was different. Eve was deceived. Adam was given an opportunity to step up, which he failed at. And those things create so much of what we as men and women and husbands and wives deal with. And that's what Paul is getting at. That's why he says for these things. But then we get to really what I wanted to talk to you about today. Nevertheless, she... That's a reference to Eve, clearly, because you just finished talking about her. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived, the woman there, Eve for sure, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she, Eve, will be saved in childbearing. Now, I told you I'm not going to talk about the other interpretations of this passage that other people have. Just give you mine and tell you why. But I do have to say this, because it's just so ridiculous. But it's out there. People actually believe that this verse is saying that women come to salvation, having their sins forgiven and be made right with God by having babies. That's how odd people can get about the scriptures sometimes. Clearly that's not what's being talked about here. And there's actually a word missing in my English translation here that really should be there in the text. It's this word, the. Nevertheless, she, shall, she will be saved in the childbearing. It's a definite uh, article in the Greek. The childbearing. It's not just childbearing generally. The childbearing. What do you think that refers to? The coming of the Messiah. The child. Remember that on the occasion, see, see, this all points us back to Genesis 3, where having, having sinned, God begins to say to the serpent and then to the woman, to the man, well, here's the consequences now. This is what you've unleashed. This is what sin has unleashed. But to the serpent, he says, it will be the seed of the woman who crushes your noggin, who crushes your head. That's the first 
promise we have about the coming of the Messiah. It doesn't say, doesn't say they're the seed of the man. It's the seed of the woman. Why? Because the Messiah needed to be born of a virgin. That's why it's, a, it's, it's addressed the way it is here in verse 15. The childbearing. She, Eve, and her daughters, along with all the rest of us, will find rescue, restoration, salvation. The recovery of what was lost, the rolling back of the consequences and curse of sin because of the child who will be born, the Messiah, Jesus. That'd be a really great place for a hallelujah. hallelujah. With a little more something. <laughs> How many of you are happy about that? Hallelujah. And you're just also stunned with my fine oratory. You didn't know how to, how to respond. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they. Who's they? Now, some would say that this is now we take the, the singular she to become plural they. And, and so they want to make the rest of this statement about women. If women will just do these things, then we'll be okay. Now, this is, this is a reference to what comes right before, where it talks about Adam and Eve. So if they, there's a rolling back and a recovery of all the stain of sin upon my life and your life upon this world, there's a rolling back of that when we, when they, husbands and wives, men and women together do these things. When we continue in faith, in love, and holiness with self-control. So let me just finish this out by talking about those things briefly. Faith. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of husbands and wives, partners of promise. I know that not everyone here is married and, and nobody needs to feel like that's some odd thing if you're not. But if you are, you need to pay attention to this. And if you plan to be or to be again, you need to pay attention to this. Paul has given instructions to men and to women about how to step out from under the shadow of the fallout of, of Adam's and Eve's sin. And now he does the same for couples. If you want to have a marriage that's, that is not always under this cloud... Pay attention. He says, do these things. Um, exercise faith. That's a commitment to God. At the, at the very base part, the, the, the foundation of your relationship with each other, make sure that a commitment to God is what draws you together, what keeps you together. It's the day-to-day basis. You don't have, you know, Adam and Eve did not have a relationship except for God. And it ought to be that none of us have a relationship with our spouses except for God. He's, we understand he's the one who brought us together and it's for his purposes that we remain together. He is everything. Faith. Zonda used the word love, which in the original language, is the word agape. You've heard me talk about that before. That's a word the New Testament has co-opted to, to describe the kind of love that God has. 
None of us come to marriage with that kind of love all uh, sewn up, all worked out. And, and you've probably figured that out, right? But we can grow in it. And the love that I brought to my marriage can start to become refined and look more like the kind of love that God has. And that's what I want. That's what you want. That sacrificial love that makes my relationship with my wife unshakable. And then he says, continue in holiness. Holiness. A commitment to purity. So faith is a commitment to God. Love is a commitment to each other. And holiness is a commitment to purity. Have you noticed that there's an awful lot of impure things that want to invade your relationship? I'm just the only one? <laughs> well, I'm willing to admit it. <laughs> so we as couples and wives, we, uh, couples and wives, I didn't say that. Husbands and wives. <clears throat> we as husbands and wives, we need to make a commitment to purity. To build something that stands as a testimony to God. And then he finishes out by saying, continue, if they continue. We see a rolling back of the curse, the cloud, the fallout of sin. We see that rolling back because of the work of the Redeemer. And we experience it when we continue in these things, the last of which is self-control. What does that mean? It's often missed by married couples that we have a job to ensure that we keep at bay things that don't belong in our relationship. Things that uh, should not be given place to. Things that don't belong in our family life. Self-control. We exercise the boundaries here. We choose on the basis of the Word of God and our relationship with Him not to let this be in, in our home. Not to not allow this to be in how we relate to each other. It doesn't belong here. Self-control. We want our, our marriages, our relationships with each other to be a, reg, a refuge that's predictable and steady and secure. Not something that's, you know, up for grabs from day to day where there's the insecurity and instability and... and Sometimes insanity that often swirls around a, a couple and their family. And you know what it's like. I think about a lot of times, some of you wouldn't even know what I'm talking about, but in the old uh, uh, cartoon, you know, uh, shoot, what's Charlie Brown cartoon. <laughs> One of the characters was Pigpen. And he was drawn like a tornado. Just this, this whirlwind of dust and junk swirling around his life. Sometimes, like I've been counseling people in marriage for a long time, and I, it feels like their life is just like that. It's just a swirling mess. And often the reason is because they've allowed things in that don't belong. They haven't exercised self-control. It says... That doesn't belong in here. I'm not going to give my time to that. I am going to, this is the priority we're going to have, not that one. When we make those kinds of choices, we are 
uh, lining up with the Savior who wants to roll back the consequences and, and fall out from sin. This is recording number 11236 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, November 20, 2016. This is the third and final message in a series titled, Men and Women, Husbands and Wives. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, Partners of Promise.